do you realize that when you talk about your career, you say, I was so lucky. I was so lucky. And I actually thought, yeah, I do say that. But I do think, I'm sorry, but I do think luck has a little bit of a part to play in that lucky that I happened to meet Sharon. And then, you know, happily, she then saw something in me. And but there was a bit of luck in that. And then I think, you know, the big thing for me, the biggest message is the role that sponsors can have in your life. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti, and I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We must change this. And I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Thank you for listening. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. You can find out all about our work on the website and the best way to be kept in touch with things is the newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. This episode is a bonus episode for those of our listeners who are employer change makers and want to drive change for working parents at their organisations. Emma Codd and I talk about implementing a culture change that works, doing it without big budget and finding a senior sponsor to back you. Enjoy. Thanks, Verena. Great to be here. So, okay, let's start. So, introducing myself, first of all. So, my name is Emma Codd. I am a partner of Deloitte NSE and Deloitte UK. We're a huge professional services firm for those that don't know, that haven't come across Deloitte before. I am a global inclusion leader for Deloitte. So, effectively, that means that I am really responsible for devising and rolling out our inclusion strategy, our diversity, equity and inclusion strategy on a global basis. So that's basically across just over 160 countries around the world. So that's the sort of introduction. That's hopefully what I do for work. And who is in my family? My husband and my incredible two 13-year-old twin daughters, two dogs, one of whom is very old, 17 and a half year old dog and a younger dog and also now a cat that thinks it's a dog. So that's my family and my life at home. Very important to mention the dogs and cats. And are are you the one who is doing all the looking after the dog or the cat or have you delegated? Of course I am. (laughs) I'm a woman. (laughs) I'm the one that has the mental load. I'm the one that has, you know, all of that stuff. I'm really lucky I have somebody that comes in sort of for half the day to help me just to when I'm not there in particular to you know make sure the dogs are walked and actually things like the walking of the dogs is you know the easy bit because basically I actually quite like doing it because it gives me a breather and you know very very busy days and actually just to go out for half hour plod is actually I think for my mental health actually works for me but in terms of who takes children to orthodontists who remembers dentist appointments who does all that stuff sadly the majority falls down to me. Mm. And you are in this extremely senior position and also have this full life going on. Is that what sparked you when years ago you first got interested in the topic of inclusion and culture? What made 
Emma be so interested that she ended up being the global inclusion lead for Deloitte in the end? Yeah, I have a weird career journey. I often meet with people who say, tell me how you got to where you got to and how did you plan it? And it was completely unplanned. You know, I started out, you know, very early days. I had a terrible, I basically suffer from endometriosis or suffered from endometriosis. So for those people that don't know what that is, that's a chronic menstrual disorder. It basically means that people that suffer from it can suffer very severely, can be in pain, excruciating pain for a lot of the time. It's pretty horrible. It's one of those things that, you know, typically or sadly, there hasn't been enough research in, there isn't a cure. It's a case of managing it. And typically it takes seven years for a diagnosis, which was basically me. That was the case for me. And, and the night before my finals at university, I collapsed in the street in pain, was rushed into hospital and they whipped my appendix out because of Apparently, that's the main thing they look for back in those days when a woman was doubled up with pain. And to cut a long story short, I then had to go back the following year to do my finals. In During that year, I had to do something and I, I got a job at an American corporate investigation agency and fell in love with uh, risk-related work. Carried on doing that, including the stints where I had my own business in my mid-20s. Sold that business to another company, stayed there for three years ended up at Deloitte and with a plan to stay here for three years and loved it so much. 25 years later, I'm still here and I'm a partner as well. So I became a partner in 2003. Round about the time I became a partner, I was given an opportunity by an incredible woman, Sharon Thorne, who's our global chair. She was a partner in the UK at that stage. She and I met, got on very, very well, had lots in common, particularly when it came to equality and our views on gender equality and all aspects of equality, actually. And she gave me the opportunity. She was talent partner of the UK at that time. She gave me the opportunity to become the sponsoring partner of the Women's Network that she set up when she was around about the time she was talent partner. And so that's really my first involvement in the organisation. And so it was sort of blank canvas. This was sort of early 2000s, you know, sort of say 2005, 2006. What do we want this to be? And really looking at how can we get the most out of that? And I think, why did I do that? Because actually, in my own experiences, I typically was prior to joining Deloitte. And actually, when I joined Deloitte, always been in very male-dominated industries. One of my jobs, I was the only woman really in the, pretty much in the entire professional staff of the company. So I've always been the only or one of the few. And I did experience inequity and did experience certain behaviours. And I think that's probably like with many people who get involved in diversity, equity and inclusion, there is typically a lived experience or a personal reason as well that drives it and fuels it. So for me, that was what you know, made me very determined that we needed to level the playing field and very much of the view that was not absolutely not a level playing field. And so and then we carried on doing the sponsoring role at the same time as doing my financial advisory job. So I carried on doing risk work for much of my career. And then David Sproul, who was our CEO in 2013, asked me to join his leadership team and gave me the role of managing partner for talent, which was all things people. But a big part of that was diversity, equity and inclusion. And so it enabled me to take what had been a sort of side of desk, really a sponsoring partner of the Women's Network, to enable me actually to let go of that, which I really needed to, to hand that on to somebody else and actually to bring about really meaningful change and to work alongside our CEO to, you know, do things that were really necessary to do for our organisation. Mm. It's fascinating to see how 
moments of random openness to opportunities led to you being here. And in a way, that's very encouraging that you're just saying, yeah, why don't I become the sponsor for the Women's Network? I think it's important. And then it wasn't that easy, but it just, if you hadn't said yes at that moment, you might not have ended up where you are now, where you can make a massive difference. I agree. Look, I think there are two things because I often get told off for saying I'm lucky. And so I will talk about my career and I didn't realise I did this. It was a few years ago, someone said, do you realise that when you talk about your career, you say, I was so lucky. I was so lucky. And I actually thought, yeah, I do say that. But I do think, I'm sorry, but I do think luck has a little bit of a part to play in that. Lucky that I happened to meet Sharon. And then, you know, happily, she then saw something in me. And But there was a bit of luck in that. And then I think, you know, the big thing for me, the biggest message is the role that sponsors can have in your life. And, you know, Sharon, definitely our former managing partner, John Connolly, he was a sponsor. And then David Sprout was a sponsor. That to me is the bigger thing. You know, a sponsor, they're so important. I didn't know they were sponsors at the time. I didn't have the conversation saying, will you be my sponsor? I had no idea. They were just people that spotted something in me and gave me an opportunity to shine. That's what a sponsor does. The sponsor, you know, they just spoon feed you, but they need to give finding an opportunity that you thrive and shine in. And so, yeah, so, I mean, I think it's it's really in large part down to that, down to sponsors and then me finding something I'm passionate about. Mm, absolutely. I am going to ask the questions which I said to you at some point, but I just want to know what behaviours do you think you, and I get your point about there being a big amount of luck, but is there anything that you did to attract a sponsor or anything that you would tell your daughters to do to make sure they are exposed to potential sponsorship opportunities? That's a really good question. Do you know what? I always had these basic rules, which were be true to yourself, stand up for your principles. You know, you have to go home at night. You have to. I was brought up by parents with very strong values around that, around, you know, always tell the truth, always, you know, treat others as you want to be treated yourself, all of those things. And I did sort of live by those. And so that probably made me speak up about things more than maybe other people might have. And I think part of it is the sort of bravery, being brave. I'm always telling my children, my children, my girls hate putting their hand up. They're in a school where they're surrounded by girls who often are full of confidence and my two aren't full of confidence. And they, you know, they're amazing. They're incredible, really bright, really just fantastic, funny, happy, well-adjusted, all of those things that you want your children to be but they won't put their hand up for stuff. And I'll say, did you volunteer? Did you put your hand up? No, no. And to me, I think that's, you know, a big lesson is many of the opportunities I have had are from people observing me being myself. I'm really good at seeing a problem and working out the solution, which again, others have spotted. So that's what I was good at in my old job, my risk work, my investigation work job, really good at that. And so for me, it's understand your strengths really understand them, know what you're really rubbish at, know what you're really good at, and really try and do things that can show that you're good, that you add value. And it is the sort of putting your hand up, you know, don't be afraid to do that. And if someone offers you an opportunity, yes, think about it, but know that you can do it. If they've offered it to you, it's because you can do it. And so I've always had this attitude that I seize the opportunity. And that was difficult when I was offered my exec role, by my leadership role by David, because my children were three years old. I had three-year-old twins. 
And a big choice for me was, you know, they come first. I'm unequivocal about that. My family comes first. So I did not want to be, it should, it for me, it couldn't be a choice about a job or, you know, do I spend time with my children? were hard fought for. We really struggled to have children. And I, you know, had them because I really wanted them and I wanted to be a parent. And so for me, I remember sitting there over the weekend when David offered me the role and really thinking properly about it and realizing actually, do you know what? I can make it work. I can do it. And and that imposter moment of, oh, I can't do the job. I don't know anything about talent. I don't think about people actually just thinking, look, he offered it to me for a reason. So it's just having that bit of confidence that you need to seize opportunities. Thank you for sharing your story. It's very powerful. When I first met you, the story that you told that stuck with me the most was about you driving a culture changing initiative. And I'll tell you what I remember. And then you can tell me if that was the right. But I remember that opposed to lots of other people who drive culture change by putting up beautiful values and then maybe doing a training session about inclusion for everybody, you took a different approach. I think you recorded the stories of people in your organization anonymously by actors and then got the exec team to listen and discuss. And that was very powerful in my recollection of of hearing you tell that story. Can you recap for the listeners what the situation was and what you did? Yeah. And your understanding is almost sort of right. So to go back to what were we trying to do, why were we trying to do this? So yes, we did do a big behaviour change, a culture change project. Did I know I was going to do that when I took on my talent partner role in 2013? Absolutely not. I had no idea that that was the route that we were going to go down. Now, we did a load of other things as well. And I've always said when it comes to DE&I, you know, it is about there'll be processes that need fixing. There'll be things you've done for years that you've got to tear up and start again. There will be you need to take a fresh look, but there will be a big element. There's a culture. There is a culture piece. And, And I've always said that inclusion is, you know, it to me is all about the culture. I know lots of people have things like, you know, diversity is going to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance or whatever that you always hear. But the reality for me is inclusion is, you know, do, do I feel included? Is it, am I included? So do I feel it? And am I? And that's down to culture and the behaviours that go on in the organisation. So we in 2013 were in a situation where we just didn't have the enough women staying with us. And everything I say about this period is said with true love for my organisation. I would not be in this. I have huge integrity. I would not be in this organization if I did not love everything about this organization. But like many companies, we had some things that we needed to look at and address. And one of those issues was sort of stats that we had from a gender balance, gender diversity perspective, where, you know, women, we were tending to lose them around manager and senior manager. We were recruiting fewer women. We had fewer women going up to partner. And it was this situation that we knew we needed to do something about it. And and we knew whatever we needed to do needed to be quite bold. So we did, we sort of looked at lots of data, we looked at a lot of processes, and the amazing thing for me was that my CEO was totally willing to do what was needed for us to do. So, you know, we did do some programmatic stuff, and we looked at, we did what I call targeted interventions. So they're things where we need to say, right, this, this is a barrier, this is not working, so we need to be willing to redesign it. And we did a lot of that. But we also, when we were looking at the data, exit data for the managers and senior managers, the women that were leaving us, what we saw was that women were predominantly leaving for two reasons. The first was, well, actually, there were three reasons. 
Um, but the first one was work-life balance, the second one was culture, and then it was career development. But we had on work-life balance, you know, we had flexible working policies, we had that sort of thing. And so we needed to understand well, what was the challenge, what was going on. And, and what became clear was that even though we had policies, it was actually how people felt when they asked, can I work in this way? And, and the way that they might have been spoken to by their leader and the judgments that may have been made, you know, you want to work reduced hours oh well that means you're not going to try very hard are you or you know it was those sort of things latent you know stereotypes I think that were at play there so we knew we needed to deal with that but when we looked at the culture bit and the trouble is it was just this was exit data it was literally the word culture and so to try and better understand that we had listening groups with large numbers of women this was by this stage it was about 2014 and when we got all those women in a room, the typical thing that came up is that everyone really loved this organization and we did lots of great things. But there were issues where our people, our women in particular, were experiencing non-inclusive behaviors. And they were typically what I would describe as microaggressions. So sort of banter, jokes at people's expense, comments about how you identify, all of those things that and you'll know, you know, definition of a microaggression is seemingly small, often unintended. But it may be seemingly small, but really it isn't small on the recipient. And it isn't small if it's happening more than one time. And yes, you know, often unintended. Well, that's because people aren't realizing what they're saying is actually upsetting someone, is making somebody you know, feel like they are not included or making them feel excluded or disrespected. So we then had to say, right, how are we going to deal with this? And you know, one of the things I'm not a big, look, unconscious bias training is fine. I think it has a purpose, but unconscious bias training does not change culture. And you can get very caught up in all the terminology and the in-groups, the out-groups, the stereotypes, whatever type of bias it is. And honestly, I couldn't wheel off all the types of bias. You know, if anyone asked me, I just know unconscious bias exists. I know I'm aware of what mine are and we all have them. And it's based on, you know, the way that we evolve, how we grow up, the environment around us. So what we decided to do was we need that we needed to educate, basically. We needed to educate our leaders. I'm a great believer in, you know, if you don't tell somebody, you have to. We've got we had lots of people who I truly believe were saying things without realizing the impact of what they were saying. So we designed an entire approach and we called it respect and inclusion. I didn't use the word diversity very, very deliberately, but so we focused on that word respect and really respect for everybody. And we basically said, you don't get inclusion without respect and you don't get diversity without inclusion. And then we had an entire program whereby my CEO, you know, he led it. He was the voice. It was very clearly a firm priority. Obviously, I was there behind building out, deciding what we had to do. And, and one of the first things that we did were these leadership sessions, which is what you referred to. And the way that we designed those was literally, I remember sitting there one day and thinking, well, how would I change the behavior of some of the people that, that I, you know, that I've worked with, that I know that may have, you know, may have said things to me that they didn't intend, you know, to make me feel bad, but they did. How do I go about doing that? So we decided we would hold two hour mandatory sessions. This was back in 2015. By the stage, we held these sessions and they were very simple. We played our Ask Yourself film, which is out there on YouTube for anyone that wants to see it. It's amazing uh, to set the scene. And then we had a facilitator that basically played 17 stories that we had recorded. Now, those stories were based on reality, but they were very, very, you know, much protecting individuals who had talked to us and shared their stories with us. 
and they were done on voice recording and everyone just had to sit and listen. And the groups apart, we had 15 to 20 at a time that went through these sessions. We held a huge number of these over a period of nine months. We put 6,000 people through these sessions and they really didn't cost us anything. We just literally needed meeting rooms and rooms to be able to do it. I think everyone often thinks that this stuff is expensive. It's not expensive. It just takes time and it takes careful thought. So in the sessions, we played those stories. And then really the facilitator would say, how do you feel? Tell me, how do you feel listening to those? That's our people. That's our people's experiences. And I would add the stories focused across the whole range of protected characteristics and more actually beyond that. So we had someone telling a story about their accent and how a comment that had been made about their accent in a meeting had really undermined the the way they felt. We had somebody, you know, another person telling a story about a comment that had been made about their ethnicity. We had a whole range of stories. And then out of that, so we put a lot of people through those sessions. It was not, you know, it was never a lecture. It was really intended to educate and make people themselves reach the conclusion that that isn't, you know, to understand to see themselves possibly in some of the stories and to understand that that wasn't the right thing to do. And then alongside that, we built additional ways for people to speak up. We had respect and inclusion advisors. One of the things when we people were talking about the non-inclusive behaviours, we asked, you know, why didn't you report them? And, and it was always the same response. It's not big enough to go to HR because these are small. These are often really small. We're not talking about really extreme action here. We're talking about the small, the seemingly small stuff So it would always be, it's not big enough to go to HR or I'm really worried about career penalty. So I'm really, really nervous about saying anything. And so we had to address that. And we addressed that by creating additional routes so you didn't have to go to HR. You could go somewhere else and that person could help hold your hand, help you determine if you wanted to go. And we'd always rather someone did take it formal, but it's the person's choice. And then the action bit was really my CEO taking action and where it was appropriate. And that was either... You know, we people going through coaching, people going through counselling, people, you know, leaders who needed, you know, leaders spending some time on themselves and in some extreme cases, leaders leaving us. Yeah, so that was it. And then we re-ran some sort of different sessions in 2018 as well. So, look, the sessions were part of it, but I would say it was a huge overall approach. It was CEO led 100 percent. Any communication on it was by the CEO. It was a CEO priority. It was CEO measured. It was the CEO that had to take action. And so, but, you know, it was fueled, a big element of it was this education and actually just getting issues on the table amongst people you trusted and being willing to sound like an idiot and being willing to sort of be vulnerable by doing that just to learn and hopefully be a better leader. If you want to turn the things we discuss on the Big Career Small Children podcast into action, do consider joining the Leaders Plus Fellowship. We have also hardship fund spaces available, should that apply to you. Even today, only 9 in 100 FTSE 100 CEOs are women, and it's a new story when there's both a woman CEO and woman chair of the board in the same organisation. And a big factor is that so many people's careers plateau when they have children and also want to be present with them and enjoy them. If you also believe that caring and responsibilities should not exclude you from becoming as senior as you like, then definitely consider joining the fellowship program. You'll become part of a group of parents who feel the same, all very different from backgrounds, sectors and so on, but are passionate about the same thing, which is 
combining ambitious careers with young children. You'll be part of a nine-month program, which is all designed to give you the courage and tools to progress your careers and also help you with practical things such as setting boundaries so that you can be as present as you want with your child. All the details are on leadersplus.org.uk and the deadline is 23rd of March. You mentioned the role of the CEO and you did actually say that we're lucky again when you spoke of the CEO. Do you have any reflections for listeners who would love to drive a similar change initiative but haven't yet got a CEO who totally gets it? Look, I think, you know, in my case, it was a CEO. In other cases, look, I think the important thing is having a senior sponsor, if you can. You know, and I think about boards, the average boardroom, you know, it's finding somebody who sits around that boardroom table who gets it and who does see that there's a challenge here. So I was in a position where I was actually on the leadership team. So I was one of the 14 people or however many it was that ran our organization. And so that put me in a position where I was able to bring about change. And I do. And so, you know, for me, it was A, being in a position of influence myself and then B, having that person that I really needed. Because if it's important to an organization, the leadership talk about it, the leadership will measure it, all of those things. And, you know, it's not important if they're not talking about it. And if they're not measuring it, so it was really important that we had that. So I would say, you know, in a corporate boardroom, there will always be somebody there. It's with all things in life. You know, it's an ally, a sponsor, somebody that understands and gets it and somebody who can support you to bring about change. It is difficult. And if you're not in a senior enough, you know, if you're somebody that's in a role where Yes, you know, you have a remit to do this. But what I often find is that I'll go in and I'll talk to DEI managers or leaders. And what you then realize is they don't have a direct line into people with influence in the organization. And that's really tough because you're trying to do things and bring about change. And you don't have the ear of the people that can actually make that happen. And so for me, it's just trying to work out. And again, it's being brave. It's knocking on someone's door to say, look, I want to tell you this. And the one thing I would say is I'm a big fan of don't take problems. Take problem, but take the solution. So when I first went to David and told him, you know, look, this is what I've heard, I also told him this is how we fix it. This is how I think we can fix it. If I'd just gone and said this is what I heard, so he'd have been, you know, really upset, which he was when I reported what I'd heard. But ultimately, so what? So to me, it was actually, I did it. I went to speak to him, you know, once I'd actually sat down and mapped out what I believed we needed to do to make change happen. So, and I would also say, you know, for people, it's really, you know, support doesn't just come from within an organization. It's things like, you know, having mentors, people that you can bounce ideas off as you're formulating, how am I going to do this? It's just count on other people, get their advice without breaching confidentiality, without any of that stuff. But just other people have probably gone through similar things. And it's just, you know, use their knowledge as well and listen to what they have to say. It's really interesting to me to hear the story and actually realize over how many years that story started. Did you have a very clear plan from the very beginning what you were going to do over three years or so? Or was it something that evolved? So it was. And so when I took the role, no, I didn't have a clear plan at all. David, you know, I had that first meeting and I said, what are your expectations? And he said two things. 
we need to sort this work-life balance issue, flexible working issue out. And we also need to fix this issue that we have on gender balance. And that was exactly where I was. So I'd been in the business. So I knew that was my view as well. And then what I then did, so I had, you know, ideas and there was, that wasn't all we did. We had loads that we had to do. And then to me, I'm very much a data person. So I'm, you know, then don't just make assumptions based on your view, look at the data. So I was able to get the data, access it. And actually that then showed that, yes, those were the issues. And then it was a case, you know, and I do think this is a skill of mine, which is right, sort of looking at the problem, looking at the, the, the issue, and then mapping out a solution. And just, and I think probably it was easier, easy is the wrong word, but it was probably clearer to me because because I'd been in the business. I'm not an HR person. I don't have an HR background. I literally was, you know, that person that joined the business as a senior manager, served clients, went up to director, went up to partner, went through the whole process like everybody else and was within the business that could see how things happened and experience things myself. That is a real benefit to me. And actually anyone that's in HR that gets the opportunity to do a secondment, spend time within a business, I would really, really emphasize the power and impact of doing that because it just gives you a different mindset. Sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in a policy thing or a, but actually being submerged in the reality of how business works and the reality for the people that are in that business are trying to make things happen often on, you know, lower budgets than they want, often with fewer people than they want, all of these things experiencing that really I think makes you a better advisor and so and actually gives you more clarity and so that was for me important so I had the data I had the listening group so yeah so 20 the strategy really respects inclusion as a whole just it was 2015 that we absolutely knew we needed to do it and then I you know finished my role in 2019 and by that stage we had a seven percentage point increase in the number of partners female partners overall we had gone over a four-year period from our average promotes, partner promotes every year being, unfortunately, 14, so one four or 13 or 14% women, to that year, the last year, 41% women. We had seen our recruitment challenges, student recruitment, totally gone. We were very much the pace that people want still are, that women want to come and work as well. And that attrition that I talked about earlier, like manager and senior manager, those pain points, totally gone. So, you know, and there were many things we did to help enable that. But the thing that underpinned it all was the culture change program. But it was really hard work and it's still not over now. I mean, you know, it continues that your culture evolves and it's continuing to drive things. I mean, you've still got it on your job description to make the organisation as inclusive as it can be. Looking back at this now, if you did it again, what would you do differently? Do you know... I honestly, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I can't. I mean, whenever I get asked that sort of question and I look back, I suppose the only thing that I might have done differently was we didn't build it in to leader the way that leaders were assessed. We didn't build, you know, a way to measure impact and a way to look at it with that. We didn't do that in year one. We did it, you know, a sort of a year or so later we came up with something called Deloitte Leader, which was very clear setting out the behaviours that we expected and, you know, who, what we expected a Deloitte Leader to be, what we expected them, how we expected them to show and to live our values. And, you know, I suppose that's the only thing for me. Would I have done it a few months earlier? Possibly. 
But apart from that, I don't, there's nothing that I, and I don't mean that to sound cocky or overconfident. I genuinely, I think things through very carefully before I do them and there's nothing I would change. Well, I invited you for a reason on this podcast to talk about it because it was a massive success. So absolutely understand if you wouldn't change a lot. If someone wants to replicate a similar culture change initiative, but doesn't have to budget, I know you said it wasn't expensive, but you did put a lot of time into it. Is it possible to do something that achieves a similar outcome in a more basic way? Yeah, I think so. Honestly, I think anyone can do this as long as you've got leadership support. If you don't have leadership support, then, you know, it doesn't work. So people actually had to attend the sessions. They weren't optional. You had to actually be there. So in terms of the sessions themselves, they were meetings. We used meeting rooms. So for very small organizations that don't have meeting rooms, it's finding a place that you can sit together and be together. Apart from that, with the recordings that we made, we did them ourselves. They were really basic. The only thing that did cost was the Ask Yourself film, which we did have some budget for, which we pulled from many places. And that's a beautiful film. And actually, that wasn't just made for the sessions. That was actually made originally for our people just to be really send a very clear message about where we were going, who we are, what we're doing. And, you know, what's important to us. And then when we released it to our people, we were bombarded with people saying, please, can I re-release this externally? I really want my friend to see this. And and so we just thought, OK, well, let's just release it externally. Other people can use it, too. So that did cost us not a huge amount, but it did. And it's beautifully produced film. But apart from that, look, you know, I always say I think people really like I, I mean, I've certainly worked with people in the past that really like shiny things. I always describe it as new shiny things, a new shiny system, a new. But honestly, I'm a fundamental believer in it being about the basics and it being about that, you know, it's about getting back to basics and talking, you know, just being very open about things, recognizing what needs to be changed and not being afraid to do that rather than inventing a shiny new performance system or whatever it happens to be. I mean, of course, do that if you want to do that. But ultimately, a lot of the stuff costs nothing. It's the same as mental health. I do loads of work on mental health. The biggest challenge around mental health in the workplace is stigma. And how what's one of the best ways to get rid of stigma is to have people talk about it, to share lived experience. That costs nothing. So in a lot of these things, they really don't cost anything. And my, my final thing that I would say is, you know, the data analysis, you know, if you don't have the data, that's fine. Just listen, hold listening sessions instead. It's just trying to find what is it that gives you enough of an idea to, you know, as to the issues and as to what needs to be addressed as well. So I always find budget is put up as a barrier to many things. And I often also find that we have what I call analysis paralysis, where someone will say, oh, we need another three months to analyze more data. No, you don't. You know the answer. You're just trying to push it off. So, you know, just for me, you know, it's just be aware of those things. Interesting. Just hearing you speak, it occurred to me that actually it did cost you something, which was courage, both about speaking on the mental health thing. The leaders have to be courageous and it's a courageous thing to lock senior leaders into one room and make them listen. So I think that that is actually something that I'm taking away from it. Just one of my final questions. There are lots of failed initiatives out there. Is there one common trap that you see inclusion change leaders walk in time and time again that you wish people would I think there are two. Sorry, there's two. So one is not having the leadership support that you need, honestly. I think that's a big issue. I often see people who embark on projects and it's awful for them. It's like people blood, sweat and tears into these things. And then to know that actually you haven't got the support to make anything happen. So I'd say that's the first thing for me. And then the second thing 
that I see that really drives me, really annoys me, is the sort of what I call the fix the person approach. So, you know, for example, all women lack confidence or women lack negotiation skills. You know what? Women are pretty amazing. Women don't need fixing. What needs fixing are typically the structures within an organization, the way we do things rather than, you know, fixing any women, frankly. And I see that time and time again. And it's not that it fails. It's just it doesn't bring about change. What happens is five years down the road, you see no change in the data. Whereas, you know, the work that we did, we saw massive changes. We showed the impact through data. Without a doubt, you couldn't argue. Whereas as so many organizations have been, you know, on their fix the person approach for the last 10 years, and it hasn't made a difference. I would say the final thing, this is quite controversial, and particularly coming from me, but I often find that organizations sort of seem to push it onto the networks, the employee resource groups to bring about change. And I say this as a huge fan of employee resource groups, but but that's not their job. Then their job isn't to fix the organization. The ERGs have amazing you know, value that they can add, but it's leaders' jobs, it's the management job to, to fix an organization. So that's the other one I would throw in there as well. I couldn't agree more. Just this week we met with some of those change makers who are leading ERGs and they're amazing and wonderful and driving change, but it's so important that they're not doing all the heavy lifting. And what some of them achieve is unbelievable, but it's not fair to expect them to do it. And also to do it without the senior buy-in is obviously right. very, very difficult. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm. and secretarial support which obviously if it's the working parents who do it that creates a whole different challenge so we always finish our podcast with two or three five minute things that someone could do who wants to take your story and implement some of the learning so if someone wants to drive culture change but doesn't know where to start what are two or three or even just one five minute thing that they could do this week to get started I think they could look at data if they have it. And I think they could, Tropics is not five minute things. It wouldn't take you long, but it's basically talk to a couple of colleagues that aren't like you. Talk to a couple of colleagues just to get and listen to them. You know, even if it is a five to 10 minute conversation, just asking them how they feel about the organization. That to me is one of the most important things that you could do. I would say, you know, I suppose lots of people will say, we go away and read on culture change. Honestly, I've never read a book on culture change in my life. Wouldn't have a clue. So I think it's also the other thing I would say is, look, I know I'm a working parent and I know I have no time for myself ever. So my time is all spent on other people. And that's the reality. And sometimes I get to the point where, oh, my God, I just want 10 minutes. That's all I want is 10 minutes. So I would say another thing that you could do if you can, whether it's you go and lock yourself in the loo or, you know, when you're walking, just try and give it some proper thought for five minutes. Sit down, trust your judgment and find a quiet place if you can, where whatever it takes to just remove yourself for five minutes and give it some proper thought. I often find that we never have enough thinking time and it's just time for ourselves. But actually, it's the time you do your best thinking. So that would be my other one. Such excellent advice. Thank you, Emma. Where can people find out more about your work and Deloitte's work? Well, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. So, you know, look me up on LinkedIn. And as I post a lot of stuff, and we've got amazing research papers that we produce. And then the other thing is Deloitte.com website is wonderful. 
because there's loads of resource there. And then I would say finally YouTube. So the Ask Yourself film I talked about earlier, if you just put Deloitte Ask Yourself into YouTube, you'll see the film. You can use it. It's out there for everyone. And also there's some amazing things that we have educational stories that we produced from in my global role now. They're called Can You See Me? So again, go into YouTube, put Deloitte and then Can You See Me films and you'll get eight incredible stories. They're not the stories of Deloitte people. They're the stories that we have just listened and created these characters that are really powerful. They're out there for people to use. We've got loads of companies that use them in meetings. So there's this stacks of stuff out there that you can access and benefit from. Amazing. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed the podcast and you think a non-judgmental community of support would be really helpful to you, then I would love to hear from you as an application to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program. As you know, properly, this is designed to help you to identify where you want your career to head and will give you lots of support and encouragement along the way. And then most importantly, to help you make it possible to get there practically whilst being present with your family in whatever way you want that to be. Previous fellows have said it made them take really courageous steps that they never thought possible and also that they made lifelong friends and connections. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the program. And that's particularly impressive because most of them work part-time or flexibly. Plus, I think they've all got quite mavericky in a good way. They're all involved in some shape or form of driving wider change for working parents, be that mentoring other parents, be that changing policy in their organizations, whatever fits at that moment in their lives. It only takes about half a day a week. Uh, sorry, <laughs> that would be a lot. Half a day a month. So I think it's more than doable. It's been designed with parents in mind. You can find all the details on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash cross-sector fellowship. The application deadline for this upcoming cross-sector cohort is 7th of March. And also, if you want us to talk to your employer, to your organization about offering this to their employees, i.e. you, then let me know and my colleague Joe or I can have a conversation with them. My email is verena at leadersplus.org.uk. On a completely unrelated note, I also feel passionate about gender equality in podcasting and I've recently learned that the top you know, 100 podcasts, etc. is extremely male-dominated, I think 90% male-dominated or something like that, depending on what stat you look at. And I thought that needs to change urgently. So if you want to help, and push forward female-led podcasts and first of all listen and share female-led podcasts and if you think this podcast is is good and useful then also do share that leave reviews and do all those things that increases the algorithms prominence so yeah for example a whatsapp or signal message to some friends with a link to the podcast is always very welcome and very helpful and hopefully it will help us smash this particular glass ceiling up in the podcast world. See you next week and thank you so much for your support.